Blog Talk Radio. Um, it is our political leaders, and I spend plenty of time 
fighting that battle. But what is life about? What is it that they're fighting for? They're fighting for our liberty, for our freedom, for our ability to pursue our happiness on earth. And part of that is appreciating great genius like existed in Prince. So I don't think that the attention is overblown. There might be something else that you don't like about Prince that you're not telling me, but he was a musical genius um, from, by all accounts, seemed like a nice guy. Um, And to say it's overblown to mourn when someone passes way too soon and, and that type of genius leaves us is entirely wrong. So anyway, that's, that's my, my answer to that. This, this is really what it's about. This is what our soldiers die for is the pursuit of happiness here on earth. And certainly that's what Prince did. And part of the pursuit of happiness is appreciating people like Prince. So, um, some people in the chat room are saying, what did I miss? Um, you're missing me arguing with Pam James who posted a comment on my blog. So welcome, Arjun. We have John in the chat room. We have a bunch of people just kind of hanging and, and uh, kind of lingering in, in the chat room. But feel free to join the discussion over here at Blog Talk Radio. If you do want to call in and talk about Prince or Hope or Earth Day or Taking Risks is the last topic that I have. The number is 760 888 5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Just Jean's there in the chat room. Hi. Welcome. How are you? Um, When you do call in, if you call in and you haven't done this before, hit the number one if you would like to ask a question or or leave a comment or anything. That would would be great. So let's talk a bit about Prince. If you go to my blog, at don'tletitgo.com. I always put program notes. And today, I actually have three different videos that I posted. One of them is, I believe it was 2004, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And the song is The Beatles, My Guitar Gently Weeps, and Prince plays an amazing solo in there. It begins at about 325, and I suggest watching it. You could listen to it, but you need to watch it. Um, Arjun says, great samples of Prince, by the way. Thanks. You know, I have my Facebook feed to thank for these samples because I've been, you know, kind of looking over them the past couple of days. And these are the things that that struck me and that I really loved. The other sample is an acoustic set that was at Webster Hall. And so it's just Prince with the guitar interacting with the audience and the thing that you love there. And again, you have to go watch these videos. I'm not going to play anything of those uh, on, on the air right now because you need to see the video. You need to see his benevolence. You need to see the way that he interacts with the audience. You need to see his unabashed self-confidence and, um, you know, anyway, I'm not going to say any more because there's just something really funny in the uh, the Webster Hall set that you need to see. Uh, on on the uh, Hall of Fame, you know, the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame clip, you're just seeing his virtuoso guitar performance. It's it's amazing, but in the acoustic set, you're getting more of a sense of his personality, and it is it is just so much fun. Um. 
Yeah, Awesome Thoughts says Prince was underrated as a guitarist, probably one of the top five. You know, it's interesting because there was a little meme or quote that was being passed around. And you know how people do this. Somebody dies and then phony quotations start getting passed around. And this one was that somebody goes to Eric Clapton and says, what is it like to be the world's greatest guitarist? Or I can't remember if it was the world's greatest guitarist, the world's greatest living guitarist. And he says, I don't know, go ask Prince. That's the quote as it's represented. But apparently if you go to Snopes.com, it is phony. It's not true. From what I understand, the Rolling Stone, they posted a survey, top 100 guitarists of all time. And when they first did this, they actually left Prince off entirely. And now they've included him as number 33. I'd have to go look at the list and see the other ones. But certainly amazingly, amazingly talented. One of my favorite memes that was going around about him today, let me see if I can pull it up on my, I've got about five devices sitting in front of me. And one of them is my phone, which will probably be the fastest for getting what I want here. Um, I'm going to go to one of my Facebook friends who posted this meme about Prince. A number of people have been passing this one around too. And it just gives you an idea of what a nice guy he seemed like. You know, 37 years of fame, never had a sex scandal, never had to settle out of court, never had to have a a ghostwriter, never copied another artist's work plays over 20 instruments, a double diamond record, Purple Rain, 21 million copies sold, 19 platinum albums, six gold albums, never called himself king. Um, Amazing talent. Now, there's one thing that some people have been saying today, or not even today, but also yesterday too, as I've been looking around. I guess his kind of androgynous persona has turned some people off in a certain way. I know that when I was younger that he was a bit too much for me in that way, but as you get older, it doesn't bother you as much. I don't know. You just kind of grow into it, but um, who cares, right? Whatever You can still identify him as a benevolent person who was self-confident in in a way that was justified, right? And yes, he was very sexual. Sex is a good thing. Um, We are are not prudes. You may not like his particular way of expressing his sexuality, but uh, he celebrates sex and that is not a bad thing. There's this fun article uh, on the New York Times and I went ahead and posted the link at don'tletitgo.com. Headline is Prince Knew What He Wanted, Sex, Soul and you. And um, one of my favorite quotation from it is he says, if Elvis was sex, Prince was a sexual orientation, his own, and it was oriented toward you and you and you. And I would say, you know, pretty much anybody who can appreciate the um, charisma of someone would appreciate the charisma of Prince and say, yes, he is an attractive guy. You know, you don't necessarily say that based only on his looks, but you do say that say that based on his talent and on his persona. And, um, you know, again, just amazing. Um, officially, he says Prince wasn't gay, but was he straight? You know, all of this other stuff that he did, the the romantic stuff. You know, a lot of it he did 
in the 80s, and, and that was just the style. I love Duran Duran, and the keyboardist Nick Rhodes wore just as much makeup as Prince, just, was just as flamboyant. That was just part of what was going on. Um, you know, he wore those really high heels, and I actually do wonder whether that was part of what hurt his hips. But other than that, it was, you know, it was it was his style. And it was his own unique style, and he didn't care, and he, and he did what he wanted. Um, Rob in the chat room says, I remember watching him on MTV when he was kicking off the Purple Rain tour. Yeah, Prince the Revolution and Sheila E. Michael says, prolific songwriter too. A lot of artists are in debt to him. Yeah, one of the little-known debts that are owed to Prince is by the Bangles for Manic Monday. That was uh, interesting. Um now, someone's talking about the Jezebels. Diamond and Pearls was the Jezebels drummer's first album. And I'll need to know what you're referring to because I'm a little bit ignorant in that. Uh, awesome Thought says, Eddie Van Halen, Hendrix, Prince, in my opinion, 33. He says, yet more proof why Rolling Stone is garbage. <laughs> okay, maybe, perhaps. Maybe, perhaps. Um, but, yeah, you know, the the whole issue of dismissing him because of his flamboyant sort of androgynous persona or or his sexuality nah I, you, you don't do it I mean suppose not all of it is, is exactly your taste you can still appreciate him as a great musical genius and you know again how much of that is I think somebody just being just a little bit prudish you know again it doesn't have to be exactly your taste for you to appreciate it um, so do, do go check out those articles. I also posted, of course, the official New York Times obituaries because those are uh, very thorough and, and excellent. But this was, you know, again, so many horrible losses this year. David Bowie, we had George Martin recently, uh, you know, Prince and, and so many this year. It just seems like a disproportionate number of really great talent that we've we've lost this year. In terms of how he died... As I understand it, there were drugs involved, some sort of a drug overdose involved, but also his people had been saying that he was suffering from the flu. So my own thought on this is that he may have been having some complications of the flu. And, and in fact, I have one friend on Facebook, Amesh Adalja, and he's an infectious disease specialist, and he put out a blog post saying, yes, it is quite possible to die from complications of the flu. But then think about this, right? These drugs, um, Percocet is one that they said that he had been taking for hip pain. These, uh, you know, these kind of opioid drugs, they have a respiratory depressive effect. And I experienced this myself because I was in the hospital for my kidney surgery in November and they pumped a bunch of these drugs via IV in me. And I was already having trouble breathing because they had filled my abdomen with air for my laparoscopic procedure or whatever, right? So that's pressing on my lungs. And then these drugs are making it even harder for me to breathe. It's a very scary sensation. So I felt this, right? So imagine he's got the flu. He's got some, you know, respiratory side effects from that, maybe some complications of that. And then suddenly he's taking not suddenly, but he, you know, he continues. He's taking dosages of these painkillers that he's needed in order to continue doing his work, right? You know, with this p- 
pain in his hips and everything. So he's taking them. They're having their effects, and they're have you know the the effects are magnified because of the flu, or you could say that the you know the side effects of the flu are magnified because of the drugs or vice versa. I would say the combination of the two could certainly have caused him major problems, and then you wouldn't say oh, you know, he's this rock star who dies of a drug overdose. It's a guy who is taking painkillers and that also happened to be having, you know, some problems, maybe some complications from the flu or something with his health. That's the best that I can guess based on everything that I've read out there because they do say that drugs were involved, that he had to be revived just several days earlier. They had to have an emergency plane landing landing and give him a, a what they call a save shot to save him from a drug overdose. Um but I'm thinking it's the combination of these things, and I could easily see how a dose of painkiller that was safe while you were healthy could be extremely unsafe when you're not healthy. So um, it's uh, you know it, it's just really a, a sad thing. It, it, it would seem like if it's if that's really the case, and we'll know when the autopsy comes out in a couple weeks that it was preventable. I understood that he he lived alone. It would have been so good if if somebody could have saved him. I do have a call. I'm going to go ahead and take it. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Bosch. Hi, Bosch. How are you? Very good. How are you? I just want to say two things about the Prince thing. Uh, if you want to know why he is as uh, I guess popular, uh, at least to me, there's one song on the album Purple Rain called The Beautiful Ones. And mm-hmm. to me, that just it just says it so well on why he is being celebrated that one song, just just to me personally, I'm, I remember listening to that again and again and again years ago. I listened to it as soon as I heard about it, about it, about his death. It's a beautiful song and it's powerful and especially the ending, it just takes it to a to a level. You know, he had he has such a range with his voice, from falsetto to very deep and powerful. And we check right. that song, the, the the beautiful ones. And then also there was something. Um, um, if listeners know about the Dave Chappelle show, who is a, a comedian for Comedy, Comedy Central, and they had this skit where Prince is playing basketball with Eddie Murphy and his brother, and he was a you know I thought it was just a, I thought it was just some some uh, made up skit, but it's actually based on a true story. You know, Prince was a oh. big basketball fan, and it's it, it was hilarious, and to know that it was based on an actual event, it just makes it even even funnier. So check that out. Also, it's been available. Time Magazine made it available. The um, the unfiltered one, I guess, with the with the profanity and Dave Chappelle's <laughs> right. Prince. It's just it's hilarious. And uh, check out also the Onion had a little story about about Prince, which uh, you know I guess you I guess you could check it out. But anyway, I just you know, Flash, I was I was going to ask you, would it be possible for you to go to the blog at DontLetItGo.com and maybe post links to all of those as a comment or something? Sure, definitely. That would be great. Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to uh, share that. The Beautiful Ones, if you haven't heard it, you got to hear it. The Beautiful Ones by Prince from the Purple Rain album. It's, it's just great. You know, I was going to ask you, Bosch, what do you think of this idea that the attention to him has been overblown and that instead we should that. be talking about yeah. I hate that because, you know what, the reality is he is being, there's a lot of attention because of his genius, because of his ability to make great music, because of his persona, because of everything. And the fact is it's well-deserved. And the fact that he dropped at 57 years old is another thing. Nobody expected it. Nobody expected this. People were shocked. I was shocked. 
Yep. I mean, this is ridiculously young. So I can't stand that attitude. I can't stand it. It's like when people want to celebrate some holiday and then people want to remind you what, what it's really about with some horrific tales. Like, give me a break. Give me a break. We can celebrate this man's life, his music, without having to sacrifice our ideas about about the soldiers or whatever. We're not to, you know, it's like it's not it's not a zero sum game here. I can't stand that attitude. No, and then you know, again, what are what are what are the purpose? What are the purpose? Of, what's the purpose of having military? The purpose of having military is to protect the right to our pursuit of happiness. Absolutely right. He he pursued happiness, as far as I can tell, completely, and part of our pursuit of happiness is appreciating people like him and what they contributed to the culture. Exactly right. And it's just yeah. like you know that attitude. It's it's also it's it's also meant to make you feel guilty for celebrating this guy's life and music. And it just yeah, I I won't have it. I shoot those people down quick, and they should be shut down quick. You know they're trying to. It's, it's not it's not ruin the parade. They're trying to overlook this man's the reason why it is a big story. It's a genuinely a big story, and they're thinking, well, this should be a big story. Well, you know what? It isn't. And believe me, the people who understand our soldiers and what they fight for, believe me, we appreciate it. We right. absolutely do appreciate it. We don't, be, we don't need to be reminded about it at the expense of Prince. Well, anyway. and, you know, and again, there's in plenty, plenty of times on my show, I have expressed appreciation for the military, Always. and moreover, moreover, I have been analyzing news stories and supporting candidates and causes and yeah. positions that will you know, hopefully at some point contribute to their safety and ending Absolutely. these perpetual wars that they're involved in. Yeah. So, and um, also they've been, yeah, yeah they've, they've been sold out by our government. They've been, uh, you know, they've been sacrificed, you know, and it's just, just, it is horrific. And anyone who comes to your blog, I imagine they would know about your work. So I imagine they would listen to your shows. I don't know what the hell they're talking about to to, you know, yeah, it could be that this woman that. doesn't even really listen to my show on a regular basis. Otherwise, I don't know that she would have done that. But I guess we'll find out. Uh, maybe, maybe if she does listen to the show, show she'll come back. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Maybe she'll, she'll, she'll maybe she'll stop being a listener. You know, again, this is a bit of an indulgent show. This is a you know a major figure in music. Uh, literally, just just dropped dead, and people are shocked. And it's time to celebrate. Why? It's a big story. It's because of the music. That's why. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he just has some great, he clearly, I mean, 21 million albums in February, that's unbelievable. I mean, that's just incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. That's unheard of today, as far as I know. It's unheard of. But uh, he was a great musician. Yeah. I mean, he had his little quirks and whatnot. And, you know what? He was an individual. You know, he did his thing. He did his thing. And, uh, you know, he could be like, you know, he wasn't ripping off anyone. He, he, was, he was Prince. And that's it. And yeah. uh, I saw I saw a little clip. I saw a little clip of him when he dropped in on the ladies at the View, and okay. it was it was pretty funny because they are just you know drooling all over him, and one of them in particular, oh, she she actually told him and made him feel very uncomfortable when she told him she said, "I have been wanting to sleep with you my entire life." That's what oh, he got up and left. God. It was so funny, oh. but so he got the up and one, left. He actually, he actually at that point got up and left. You know, they yeah. say that he's actually quite shy and everything, and and I would yeah, but, tend yeah, to believe wait it. Wait, 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 wait. When he got up and left, it, was he basically he was giving a signal for her to follow him? No, no. What, he looked what, very uncomfortable. 
he was basically no, what, like, okay, what? I better get out there. You know, for a second, I was like, what are you going to do? But he wasn't. He wasn't at all. He was really just trying to get out. It was it was kind of funny. Um, but the, the thing that he said during the, it was just a couple of minutes, he said, in terms of advice for somebody who wanted to succeed in the music business and have staying power. And he says, if you want to have staying power in the music industry, you have to learn about as many aspects of it as mm. you possibly can. So of Very course good. he learned, you know, to play so many different instruments, nice. but as far as I understand too, he's probably learned all the aspects of the production and distribution, everything else. Just no a, doubt about it. Yeah. Virtual. Basically, you know, he said he said master it, know it all, absolutely. That's that's great advice. But again, one one more time. This it's called the beautiful ones, and that's just to me. That was the one I put on immediately after I heard about his death, because that's that's the one that stuck in my head for years. Uh, you know, when doves cry is great. I mean, the love song is a scandalous from the Batman soundtrack is also great. Um, but those, you know, that one in particular. Yeah, beautiful ones. It's, just, it's, it's a beautiful song. It's powerful as hell, especially the ending. Yep, definitely. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, look, thanks for calling in. Bye. Oops, yep. Okay, I, I think I cut him off just a bit too soon. Thanks for calling in, and we'll talk next time. I've got Daniel here in the chat room. He says, I was never exposed to music early in my life, and I never even listened to artists like Prince Bowie, B.B. King, and Michael Jackson until they passed away. That's always unfortunate, too, because you feel like you don't, appreciate someone as much until they do pass and then you go and you look and it it happens so much with so many for me I never did see Prince live and I am kicking myself especially after watching that awesome clip of the acoustic set he just seems like he had such a great personality and it would be so wonderful to be in one of those little intimate concerts that he did a lot I had a long time ago friend who uh, I think has been to several of those and I'm quite quite jealous I'm going to go ahead and take another call here hi you're on the air who's this hi this is Eddie Um, Eddie it's a shame we lost a great talent there Uh, Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you knew if he had any children I think I heard he may have had one, but I actually I'm speaking a lot out of out of ignorance. I think he I think he may have had one that there was a woman to whom he was married and he had been divorced. That's uh, I what I yeah, I never knew he was married because you know he just didn't seem the type that would be married. And I just wondered if he did have any children. You know, it's like uh, it's just you know he was a great talent and you know and. I just wonder if he had uh, some genes that he passed on. Well, as we all know, probably it's not just the genes that you pass on that are going to yeah, right, do the trick, of course. Right? <laughs> um, but, the the amount of work that this man did, uh, you know, one one clip I saw today was a clip, I guess, of somebody who worked with him behind the scenes, and it was of a rehearsal or you know, kind of a sound check for a concert. And just the amount of concentration and passion that he was putting into the sound check before the concert, you could just see this guy was benevolent, very hardworking. And, it, you know, again, that's that's a kind of a, a rare thing to see, you know, so much benevolence and determination and talent and hard work and charisma in a person like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's 
really something, you know, that's, I'm just sorry to hear that he's gone, but uh, I just, you know, it's like, I, he had to have at least one shot, I thought, you know, but I wasn't I, sure. Cause, I, I you think, know, they I never think really, so. Let me, they, let me see if I can scan this again, because I, I, I looked at the, um, the obituary a couple days ago, and... Oh, I'm having my spinning rainbows on on New York Times. Because so. I'm sure he's got a heck of an estate that's going to be passed on to somebody, and you know, it's just wondering if he had a child to pass it on. You know, from what I understand, I don't want it to go to the government. That's for sure. Well, okay, so he so he had um, a lot of charitable work that he was doing, and it could be that a lot of his estate is going to go into his charitable foundation and charitable work, which would actually help it escape the grasp of the government and let it be spent. You know, if you're going to redistribute it, you may as well redistribute it in the way that you want. He wanted it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I was concerned about. And I just, you know, if he had a child to pass it on to, or like you said, you know, if there's some charitable, um, Visions he had, that would be great. Yeah, no, he and he did, and it's interesting because I understand that he became a Jehovah's Witness several years ago, and that one of the tenets of that faith is that while you're going to be doing all of these good and charitable works, which apparently he did a lot of, you're not supposed to talk about it. So Van Jones is someone who. Um, was working with Prince on a lot of this charitable work. He appeared on television in the last couple of days and was yeah, speaking about it. Yeah. And, and so apparently there was a lot, a lot of charitable work that went on there. Yeah, so I've got the whole um, obituary up and, you know, it's what, what did Obama say about him and it talks about all of his talents and stuff. Um, the halftime show, of course. A child then, because if he had a child, it should have been mentioned. I'm. I keep going through. Maybe it's going to be towards the end. Uh, okay, here we got the personal. Um, gosh, he ran away, living for some time in the basement of a neighbor. Um, interesting. Uh, they formed well, a band uh... when he was in high school. Uh, he recorded with a band called 94 East, etc. Um, his second album, Prince, started with I Want to Be Your Lover, a number one R&B hit, reached number 11 on the pop charts. This is in 1979, so he's success over so many years. Um, yes. So, yeah, now they're going through all of his music. You know, he was such a recluse that we know very little about his personal life. Uh, business battles. We all know. You remember hearing about he had the battle with his record label, and then yeah. I guess changed his name and instead had a symbol, and he was known as the artist formerly known as Prince for a while. Um, okay, yeah. So his survivors include a sister, several half siblings. Now he was married twice, and those marriages ended in divorce, and they don't speak of any kids. So I knew that he had been married, and I thought he had maybe had a child, but no, no children. Hmm. Well, well, that's kind of a shame. But uh, well, hopefully his money will go to his funds rather, you know, what he appreciated rather than what the government funds. 
Yes. Which we don't want to and give then, the cover of it. <laughs> the, other, um, the other interesting question about what he left behind is the so-called vault. And some people are saying, I think, 2,000 songs. And then you said that they, I think they said that you could have a new album every year for 100 years out of all these songs. And one person had wow. said that one of his greatest songs, I can't remember the name of it, is In That Vault. And that there's just a lot of amazing things in there. So one question is, are we going to get to hear some of the things in the vault? I'm sure it would be amazing. Well, hopefully uh, we will. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, Stuart, Amy, keep up the good work. Uh, enjoy your show. Thank yeah, you. thank you. And enjoy my little indulgence later. I'm going to start talking about hope pretty quick. So thanks for calling in, Eddie. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Um Stuart in the chat room here is saying he was the artist formerly known as Prince due to a dispute with a record label. The label claimed he could only legally perform as Prince under that label. Okay. So then he becomes the artist formerly known as Prince. That is beautiful. I love it. Um, yeah. Oh, Arjun says maybe Prince would want to help pay the debt off with all the money that he had. You know, again, I've talked about this before. I actually think it is immoral to donate to the government to help pay the debt off unless and until they have in place and already are, you know, kind of irrevocably practicing a plan for discontinuing the deficit spending and, uh, you know, paying the debt off and getting all of this under control. Otherwise, you're just an enabler. And, uh, you know, we don't want to see him do that. Um, yeah, Stuart says, then he just changed his name to a symbol, and you didn't know how to say the name of the symbol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the artist formerly knows. But that's what I always, you know, for during that period knew him as. But I guess what, they figured it out because they called him Prince at the end. I don't know. Uh, in any event, so when people talk about, oh, you know, he died as a, you know, in a drug overdose like every other rock star, he was not like every other rock star other things that I've read about him is that when he put together a party in the Minneapolis area where he was, sometimes I guess they'd have these big parties, they'd have a $10 cover charge and you could just come and party. However, you were not supposed to be drinking or doing drugs or anything at these parties. So they were probably still wild, but they didn't involve alcohol or drugs. And they said also that he was a health food nut. Uh, some people had joked about the fact that if you were going to go to visit him at his home in his compound, that you'd have to eat your cheeseburger first before you'd go over there because that's not the kind of thing that you would eat there. Uh, just Gene says that once his contract expired, he went back to the name Prince. Excellent. That's awesome. Um, do they call the symbol love symbol number two? That is something that an expert on Prince would have to uh, tell me. I wrote to an acquaintance who just, I mean, it uh, was a real serious fan of, of Prince and also a great musician himself. And I said, I'm going to speak ignorantly but favorably about Prince because I do. I have relative ignorance about him, but great admiration, uh, you know, for anyone who is that talented. And, and you know, again, any time a great talent is taken from the world too soon, potentially due to a cause that could have been prevented like this, um, it, it's really tragic. I, From everything that I've read and that I've seen, I don't see this as your typical drug overdose. I would see it, again, as 
you know, a, a combination of these drugs, which do have a depressive respiratory effect, and maybe that flu that he was battling. We're going to have to see uh, in a couple weeks when the autopsy comes out. But it's just tragic that I guess he was by himself in, in his compound and nobody could help him. Um, you know, we we could have prevented this. And, and with, you know, a few days before he was out riding bikes and having fun and, you know, playing concerts for people and joking with people and just ha- having a wonderful time. And people would not have anticipated that this was coming. So... Um, okay, I don't have any more callers that want to speak on this. Again, if you do want to talk, you'll press 1, and that'll give me a little question icon and let me know that you don't want to just listen, that you also want to speak. But I want to go ahead and talk about the topic of hope. And my kind of fascination and kind of attention for the word hope began with my grandmother. My grandmother had always told me this saying that she learned through her religion. Her religion was called science of mind. She was a lapsed Catholic and she became an adherent to science of mind. And she would say, hope is just a little bit better than despair. And in fact, I have a whole blog post in which I talked about this and analyzed it and and basically said that I agreed with it. Um, So you can find the link to that at my blog at don'tletitgo.com in the program notes for today's show. You can go back and read that old post. But the idea is is that hope is an emotion and despair is an emotion. Hope is a positive emotion. Despair is a negative emotion. Hope is just a little bit better because it's positive, but both of those are at root just emotions. And, you know, let's plug in some little objectivist, you know, Ayn Rand's philosophy, little rationalism, and you say, okay, well, these are just emotions. Emotions aren't tools of cognition. They're just emotions. And so, you know, you can't, really say that there's any real substance there. Yeah, one's positive, one's negative, but they're just emotions. And if you keep going around saying, I hope, I hope, I hope, it's not going to get you anywhere. And another saying that my grandmother used to repeat to me often, which is we don't, and and she would, she would correct me whenever I'd use the word hope. So this is how I became so conscious of it. She'd say, we don't hope we know, we don't try, we do. So you don't say you hope. You don't say try. She also was a big um, kind of a critic of the word should. If you'd say should, you should do this, you should do that. She'd say, don't should on me. Don't should on yourself. <laughs> um, a lot of the science of mind stuff, very interesting. So, you know, I'm an objectivist. Yeah, we know emotions are just tools of cognition. And so I started becoming very skeptical of the word hope, very wary of it. And I came to the idea that I would use the word hope only in a situation when you wanted something to be the case and nonetheless you couldn't do anything about it. There was nothing you could do about it. And as a consequence, I very rarely used the word. When I did use the word, it was very deliberate. And I always sort of felt a little bit of guilt when I would use the word hope because it's like you want something but you're not doing anything for it or there's nothing behind it. I I just got this idea that that's what hope was. Stuart in the chat room says, yeah, Obama talked about hope, right? Hope and change. And he says, Trump is the despair that resulted. Yeah. I mean, this is what I'm thinking. We had, you know, Obama was about hope and change and the Obama administration 
mangled the American sense of life such that the American sense of life is now rallying around this guy, Trump. You know, again, the, you know, what's left of the American sense of life. It, it's, it's a really sad statement of the world. But, you know, for Obama, when Obama talked about hope, all it did is reinforce the idea about hope that my grandmother put into me, that there's nothing behind it, that there's not really a legitimate use of the word. And I wrote my little blog post and I kind of went on my way. Now, fast forward, and I've been teaching a law and literature class. And as part of that class, we read Camus, The Stranger. And I don't know if you've ever read Camus, The Stranger. It is super odd. Uh, this guy, it starts out, his mother died and he goes to the funeral and he seems to have absolutely no feeling for the mother and he makes very strange, detailed, perceptual level observations about everything and seems to have like no deep feelings or concern for anything. Um, he has a neighbor who beats his dog and, and the guy doesn't pass moral judgment on the neighbor who beats the dog. It is a bizarre book. But if you read about what is called absurdism, which is apparently Camus' own variety of existentialism, you could see that the guy in The Stranger, um, God, what the hell is his name, Merceau, Monsieur Merceau, um, that he is essentially living according to the absurdist philosophy. So I'm not going to you know, spoil this, The Stranger for you in terms of plot and everything, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting to just even confront and think about this idea of absurdism, but the reason that it's relevant is because the absurdists reject hope, okay? So this started to really intrigue me. Uh, so what is absurdism? I'm going to the Wikipedia entry on absurdism, and it says the absurd refers to the conflict between first the human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life, and second, the human inability to find any. Okay? Um, so it doesn't mean logically impossible, but humanly impossible. So the idea is that it's, you know, we, we are, as human beings, uh, programmed, it's unavoidable for us to try to seek inherent value and meaning in life and yet we'll never be able to find any. And so what are you supposed to do in reaction to this? Camus said, well, there's three things you could try to do. One is you could just commit suicide. But of course he thinks that's wimpy and weak, right? You know, you just say, okay, there isn't any inherent value and meaning in life and so therefore maybe you're just better off killing yourself. And he says, no, no, that is the, the easy way out. Um, you would not do that. The second way is what he would say that Kierkegaard did, which is to embrace some sort of faith, right? Um, and there, that's kind of the, the standard existentialist philosophy that you escape this absurd contradiction by having faith in something supernatural. And then the third way was just to embrace the contradiction and find a personal meaning to the extent that you can. Uh, acceptance of the absurd is what he calls it. And, the, and I'm, again, reading from the entry here, he says, a solution in which 
one accepts the absurd and continues to live in spite of it. And this is what Camus endorsed. He says, if you accept the absurd, you can achieve absolute freedom. You recognize that there are no religious or other moral constraints, right? So he dismisses all of them, not just no religious constraints, but no moral constraints. And then you revolt against the absurd while simultaneously accepting it as unstoppable. And you can construct some sort of subjective personal meaning in the process of this. And again, if you read The Stranger, you can see the, you know, the, I wouldn't even call him a protagonist, but the primary character as basically embracing that and acting according to that. And you can see what that looks like. Um, it's, it gets it gets very strange, and there's some interesting questions. But to me, the fascinating thing about this was this rejection of hope, right? And uh, again, go in the Wikipedia entry, it talks about the rejection of hope denotes the refusal to believe in anything more than what this absurd life provides. Hope, Camus emphasizes, has nothing to do with despair. So he says, no, they're not opposites. One can still live fully while rejecting hope and, in fact, can do so only without hope. Hope is perceived by the absurdist as another fraudulent method of evading the absurd and by not having hope, One is motivated to live every fleeting moment to the fullest. In the words of, and they say, Nikos Kazantikas Apatev. I I think Kazantikas, I probably did not pronounce correctly. He says, I hope for nothing. I fear nothing. I am free. So, on the one hand, I have my grandmother rejecting hope. And then I see the absurdists rejecting hope. And why is it that they're rejecting hope? If you actually look at another aspect of the absurd, and let me see if I can get this. Oh, yeah, okay. So this is, um, you know, ta- talking about the the nature of the universe, right? It is actually in the, in the nature of the universe that you can find the the root for the reason for the rejection of hope by absurdists. And let me see if I can find the passage where they talk about um, why it is that you have to do this. Um, yeah, so it is a, our universe, according to the absurdist, is a, quote, silent, cold universe. A silent, cold universe. So if our universe had been amenable to something like hope or amenable to something like what they're looking for, which is inherent meaning, it wouldn't be a silent, cold universe. So we have this silent, cold universe. And therefore, if you um, have hope, according to the absurdist, then that is based on some sort of irrationality, some sort of leap of faith. And you would not be, uh, you know, kind of accepting our absurd uh, situation. Michael in the chat room he says, nice little malevolent universe premise working there. You know, it, it's interesting though, Michael, it's not exactly a malevolent universe premise. But as I'm going to talk about here in a second, it is definitely a lack of a benevolent universe premise. What it is, it, it, it's, an, it's an expectation that the universe is going to provide intrinsic value, intrinsic meaning for us 
And if the universe doesn't provide that, which it doesn't, then therefore we are stuck in this absurd quest for objective meaning. And again, there is no objective meaning of life that is possible to achieve according to the absurdist. Um, In order for it to be objective, it would have to, in effect, in their words, be intrinsic. It would have to be inherent in the universe. So if you've just got a cold, silent universe, then there is no, um, you know, ability basically to have meaning. And it, the only way to live rationally and freely is to reject hope. Interesting, right? And yes, throughout religious ethics, throughout all ethics, uh, the only thing that you would have on this view is what they call integrity. So you're not guided by morality, according to the absurdist. You're guided by your own integrity. And what is integrity in that sense? It's really just sticking to, you know, being yourself, so to speak. Uh, honesty with oneself, consistency in your motivations, in your actions and decisions. But it's not consistency with any objective moral criterion. So now you see, right? I sit there and I say, okay. Um, okay, my grandmother rejected it. I applied, you know, little tenets of objectivism about emotions not being tools of cognition very rationalistically. And I said, okay, I'll reject hope too. And then I see the absurdist rejecting hope because of what I see as a misunderstanding of what it is to strive for a life of meaning in the world. And, you know, this is all intertwined. So it makes me reconsider the use of this word hope because, of course, I don't have the same idea of the universe and man's place in the universe as the absurdist does. I do not think that we are engaged in an absurd quest for meanings. I reject that. So where do I go next, right? Um, where I go next, actually, is to see what the benevolent universe premise is because, again, I think on a benevolent universe premise, you might be able to have some hope. So let me go ahead and get to that. I have, by the way, put links to all of these little elements of my chain of thought at don'tletitgo.com so you can follow. I'm calling this my uh, sausage on hope, sausage meaning unfinished thoughts on this topic. This is something maybe I'm going to get more involved in. Maybe I'll put together a talk on it or something at some point. But I've been, like I said, rattling around about it for a while. Um, Actually, the, the, you know, the next place that I went was to Atlas Shrugged, the novel by Ayn Rand. And I went there because it was, of course, her magnum opus, her most considered work. And, you know, early on, if you took her early work, she may have used the word hope in certain ways. And it may not have been as meaningful. It may not uh, have represented her considered opinion of you know, of what the proper use of the word was. So I wanted to just kind of see, you know, are there instances of the use of the word hope in the novel? And if so, were there positive ones, ones that you could take as positive examples and validations of the use of the word hope? And I just want to give you a couple examples of positive ones. There there are plenty in here where you would say that, um, you know, the use of the word hope was very empty, where someone in the Obama sense was, you know, hoping that 
for instance, everybody in the United States that poverty would be cured and, you know, there would miraculously be somehow, I guess, racial harmony without taking the proper actions and, you know, for that to happen. Um, so there is, there is enough of that, and, but it's, it, it's not in the heroes, right? You know, the, it, it's, um, you know, a lot of the villains and stuff using the word hope in that way. But then you say, okay, what about the heroes and, and of course, the heroine Dagny Taggart? Do they use the word hope or is the use, you know, the word hope used to describe what they are feeling in some sort of valid way? So this is the next place that that I went to look through these. And, and there are some entries, and I just want to give you a couple. One of them is in Chapter 1, and it describes... Uh, Dagny Taggart when she's uh, they're arriving at the Taggart terminal under the city of New York and I'll, I'll just read you this short passage it says quote with the first whistling rush of air as the comet plunged into the tunnels of Taggart terminal under the city of New York Dagny Taggart sat up straight she always felt it when the train went underground this sense of eagerness of hope and of secret excitement it was as if normal existence were a photograph of shapeless things in badly printed colors, but this was a sketch done in a few sharp strokes that made things seem clean, important, and worth doing. End quote. So clearly there, there is a positive connotation of hope. It is based on something real, which is that this train you know, this, uh, you know, tra- Taggart Transcontinental exists, that it's arriving in the terminal of the city of New York where there's all sorts of activity. Um, there's a, so much potential for things out there. So there's something quite positive, and it doesn't seem empty in any way because, you know, it is based on something, right? So there's that. Let me see if I can find you another one that I wanted to describe. Let's see here. Not that one. I really love, uh, by the way, the ability to search these books when you've got it on iBooks. Um, I'm wondering if I'm overshooting. Yeah, I think I might be too far. Oh, yes, here it is, right here. Chapter 4 in Part 1 as well. Um so she is having, uh, Dagny's having a conversation with Hank Reardon, and they're talking about the possibilities for Reardon metal. And, you know, he's saying, well, look, you can do this, you can uh, do airplanes, right? If you make an airplane, says Reardon, it will weigh practically nothing and lift anything. You'll see the day of long haul heavy freight air traffic. And then Dagny says, I've been thinking of what that metal will do for motors, any motors, and what sort of thing one can design now. And so they go on, you know, chicken wire and communications wire, uh, all this kind of stuff. And um, throughout this conversation, it says this. It says, uh, she had forgotten her brother and his national alliance, right, these people who are the cronyists. She says uh, she had forgotten every problem, person, and event behind her. They had always been clouded in her sight, to be hurried past, to be brushed aside, never final, never quite real. This was reality, she thought, the sense of clear outlines, of purpose, of lightness, of hope. 
This was the way she had expected to live. She had wanted to spend no hour and take no action that would mean less than this. End quote. So again, very positive connotation to the word, and it has something to it because there is really this metal. There are really all of these possibilities to do with it, and it's a sense of focusing on the important and recognizing the possibilities and, and the expectations for the future, right? Um, people are talking about crucifixion and stuff here in the chat room. I'm not sure. Maybe they're still on absurdism. But um, so you see that there are some positive uses of the word hope in Atlas Shrugged. And in fact, there are many of them. There are also some that are more questionable. So for example, um, Dr. Stadler speaks about the hope of intelligence in his three pupils and then expresses the disappointment because the one turns out to be a playboy and um, another one, I forget what he says, oh, well, you know, the, the pirate, right? And then he doesn't talk about the third because you're not supposed to. Um, but yeah, you know, he talks about how he's disappointed in them. And, and you wonder when he talks about the hope of intelligence in them, does he think it's based on anything solid? Does he think that intelligence is just something you get by luck, like, um, you know, John Rawls does, for example? And so it's just kind of the luck of the draw, and then it's just the luck of the draw that they became playboys and everything else. Um, you know, what is, what is it based on? Anyway, it's interesting. So there are there are kind of positive uses of hope, negative uses of hope, neutral uses of hope, but at least I got the idea by looking at Atlas Shrugged that yes, there are some proper positive uses of this word and that I was probably dismissing it too prematurely. So then let's go to the benevolent universe premise. There's a discussion of this in the Ayn Rand lexicon. Of course, it's just quoting from uh, you know various materials written by Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff. And the one that I wanted to focus on is this excerpt from Leonard Peikoff's Philosophy of Objectivism lecture series. And, you know, again, go back to the absurdist idea, the absurdist idea that it's a cold, silent universe, and therefore there can be no inherent meaning for man in that, and therefore you should give up this idea of hope. So here's the excerpt from Leonard's lecture. He says, although accidents and failures are possible, they are not, according to objectivism, the essence of human life. On the contrary, the achievement of values is the norm. Speaking now for the moral man, moral by the objectivist definition, success and happiness are the metaphysically to be expected. In other words, objectivism rejects the view that human fulfillment is impossible, that man is doomed to misery, that the universe is malevolent. We advocate the benevolent universe premise. Now, let's see what that means, right? Um, I don't believe that the absurdists think that the universe is necessarily malevolent, but they think that it is somehow, um, you know, inimical to finding meaning to life for the universe to be neutral. But let's listen to what Leonard Peikoff says. He says, the benevolent universe, and he puts that in quotation marks, benevolent universe, he says, it does not mean that the universe feels kindly to man or that it is out to help him achieve his goals. Right, And that's what the absurdist wants. The absurdist wants the universe to feel kindly to man or that it has to be out to help you achieve your goals. Then it would be okay to have hope, right? 
according to the absurdist. Then it would be okay to search for meaning if the universe was that way. He says, no, this is, again, going back to Leonard. He says, the universe is neutral. It simply is. It is indifferent to you. You must care about and adapt to it, not the other way around. But reality is, quote-unquote, benevolent in the sense that if you do adapt to it, i.e., if you do think, value, and act rationally, then you can, and barring accidents, you will achieve your values. You will because those values are based on reality. And then he goes on to say, pain, suffering, failure do not have metaphysical significance. They do not reveal the nature of reality. Ayn Rand's heroes accordingly refuse to take pain seriously, i.e. metaphysically. You remember Dagny asked Ragnar in the Valley how his wife can live through the months he is away at sea. And he answers, you know, we don't think that tragedy is our natural state. This is from Atlas. We do not live in chronic dread of disaster. We do not expect disaster until we have specific reason to expect it. And when we encounter it, we are free to fight it. It is not happiness but suffering that we consider unnatural. It is not success but calamity that we regard as the abnormal exception in human life. End quote. Okay, so man has a nature, and, and this is one point that I kind of wanted to add, it, add to this passage here, that we have a nature that allows us to adapt to reality, right? We have our rational faculty. And then if you make the choice and you do adapt to it, you think, value, act rationally, then you can achieve your values. So in that sense, the universe is benevolent. It gives you the option to do this. And you are. You're acting according to your free will, but you're doing it in accordance with your nature. And yes, you are acting in a universe that while it is not inviting you and helping you achieve your values necessarily, all the conditions are there by which you can achieve any rational values. So this is a very different idea of the universe. And I think what it does is it exposes the impossible uh, you know, bar that the absurdists set. The, bur- you know, the absurdists think that unless the universe is actively helping you achieve your goals, then therefore it is futile to seek any objective meaning in life. It is uh, you know, absurd to have something called hope. So, you know, again, I see positive, uh, you know, valid uses of the word hope in Atlas Shrugged. Ayn Rand obviously believed it was okay to use this word in reference to the things that her heroes felt and experienced for good reason, right? And then here I see a description of, you know, the proper way to to look at the universe It is neutral, but it is benevolent in the sense that we have a nature that allows ourselves to adapt to what, you know, the nature of the universe and achieve our values and achieve happiness in the universe. So there's that. Um, So what do I do finally? And again, I don't know if this is the right order. I'm giving you my, my hope sausage here. I go to the OED, Oxford English Dictionary. I have the huge old 12 volume set and I probably, I don't see myself really as a scholar, but I probably pull it out about twice a year and look up a word to give me a little bit more. Um, and that that's really how Leonard 
as I recall, used to use it as well. You know, every so often there's a word and you just want to kind of get deeper into it. And the Oxford English Dictionary gives you the origins and all the different variants. And it's a lot of fun. So I pull it out. And in fact, I posted um, a fun little excerpt from there's like a second variant of the word hope. And the second definition in the second variant of the word hope actually refers to a valley. Uh, Let me go ahead and actually find that and read that to you because it was so much fun. Okay, here it is. Yeah. How good are my eyes? This is the test, right, of my eyes. Let me zoom in thanks to Apple. Okay, a small enclosed valley, especially quote, a smaller opening branching out from the main dale and running up to the mountain ranges, the upland part of a mountain valley, a blind valley. And this is the use of the word chiefly in the south of Scotland, northeast of England, where it enters largely into local nomenclature. So interesting, right, that it would refer to a small enclosed valley, the word hope, that, you know, that's a noun. Daniel in the chat room says, Amy Peekoff, etymology nerd. I am not, this is the thing, again, I'm I'm normally not a scholar, but I have had this issue about hope rattling around in my brain, as I said, for years. My grandmother died in 2010, and that was one of the things that I kind of started thinking about. You know, again, at the time of her death, yeah, you think about the time of Prince's death, we appreciate his music. At the time of my grandmother's death, I started thinking more about hope. Um. So anyway, here's the definition, the the primary definition of hope, and it's this. Expectation of something desired. Desire combined with expectation. Okay? Desire combined with expectation. That is hope, according to Oxford English Dictionary. Now, if you think about that, what is the expectation based on? And if you look at those passages that I read, you know, from Dagny and her thinking, the expectation of something that you desire in the future coming true is based on something in in her case. Now, it turns out, you know, we learned she's making a a crucial error uh, about the world and such, but it's true that at least with respect to some things, like, for example, Reardon Metal and its possibilities, those are all true. Um, what may not be true is that, you know, she's kind of selectively looking at those possibilities apart from the world outside them, right? Uh, but it, it, it's based on something. So desire combined with expectation. And what I'm starting to think is that if that expectation is based on something solid and real, then hope would be perfectly valid. Uh, so think about this in terms of you know, self-esteem. If if you have proper self-esteem, then your expectations are that if you desire something, you will act on it, and you're going to act on it in a way that's in, you know, conformance to reality. You're going to conform to the facts of reality in doing it. You're not going to try to defy this. Um, you aren't requiring of yourself any omniscience or omnipotence in this standard, right? That would be absurdist to say that you have to be omniscient and omnipotent before you can have hope about this. But if you say, look, the universe is such that in the normal case, if I conform my actions to the requirements of reality, I can achieve my goals. Uh, If I desire something, rationally desire something, then the premise is I'm a rational person. I'm going to act on it. I feel I'm worthy 
of achieving my happiness, and I'm going to do it. So hope would be based on something. And you could see that people who are hopeless maybe would lack the conviction that if they desire something, they're going to do it. And then hope for them would be more empty, right? Um, There are actually some connotations of the word, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, in which you would have, on the one hand, expectation without desire, which is bizarre, right? Why would you even say hope if you don't actually want it to happen? To me, that seems very strange. But apparently, there are some meanings of hope where you say expectation without desire. On the other hand, desire without expectation. Now, this is the kind of connotation that I think my grandmother was rejecting, where you'd say, okay, you know, you have a desire for something, it's an emotion, but there's no solid expectation that you could actually bring it about. And that's the thing that's dangerous, right? The, the desire without the expectation. Um, the only question I would have is that suppose there's certain cases where you would like something to happen, but you have absolutely no control over it at this point. And you know that there's no control. So maybe it's okay to use in that case the word hope. Like, um, you know, for instance, I was saying the other day, uh, John Stossel, this is a, another yucky thing that has happened, is John Stossel has gotten lung cancer. And I say that I hope he makes a speedy and full recovery. I have absolutely nothing that I can do about that, but I desire that. I wish that. I wish that for him. And so I say, I hope, right? So you say desire without expectation. Um, I could say that there is an expectation in the sense that he says, I believe with good reason, that his doctors caught the cancer early, that they're going to remove one-fifth of his lung, and that, uh, you know, because they caught it early and he's only going to have to remove one-fifth of his lung, he's got a great chance of uh, survival. Wonderful. So maybe there is some expectation behind that, but I don't feel that there's anything in particular that I can do about it. So, you know, using my thought about my grandmother, I didn't feel bad using the word hope, right? Um, But what about these types of things, right? Suppose you want to wish a friend well. Uh, They have a big interview for a job or they have a big presentation for their work or a meeting that they're going to go to. So can you say validly, hope your presentation goes well, hope your interview goes well, hope your meeting is productive. And I think you can, you know, you have a desire, of course, for that, for your friend, but, you know, you have an expectation, you have an expectation based upon your friend's ability to do well in that environment. You have an expectation that people generally are rational when they're going to be dealing with your friend. They're going to judge your friend according to rational standards or that if, you know, it's a meeting where they're trying to be productive, that the other people are also going to be doing their thing. So, I don't know that even that is necessarily a bad use. Again, these are just things that I'm thinking about. Uh, Robert in the chat room says, break a leg. You can just say break a leg. Yes, you can. You can definitely just say break a leg. Um, And what does that convey? I I think that conveys a hope that they're going to do well or a hope that there's going to be some good outcome from it. And you're trying to avoid saying the word hope. And again, I wonder, what is... Is the reluctance to say the word hope an adoption of an irrational standard of what the 
you know, universe should give us for us to actually feel hope? Or is it maybe you don't feel as confident in the situation, so you say the word hope, or, you know, you're, or you're not understanding it. Um, Michael in the chat room, are, okay, you say, I don't think saying hope in the context of expressing goodwill is fine, or you say you do think saying hope in the context of expressing goodwill is fine. Scratch tone. Okay, good. <laughs> good. He says, I think saying hope in the context. Yeah, and, and I, I think it is, again, if you keep this understanding of it as desire plus expectation and you realize that your expectation is based on something and that your desire goes along with it not just you know and especially it's a you know desire in your case if you're saying you're hoping for yourself um, that you will be taking actions you know towards it you will be acting rationally in order to gain this value that you hope to gain or this outcome that you hope to bring about. So, you know, my idea is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with this. Um, there's another aspect of this, and it actually, again, came up in my law and literature class. We just started reading Inherit the Wind to finish off the semester. We finish off the semester in a couple of days now. And I don't know if you've read Inherit the Wind or if you've seen Inherit the Wind. <laughs> John in the chat room says, I hope I win the lotto. Well, let's hope that if you hope you win the lotto, John, that you are buying tickets, right? Of course, I don't know. Winning the lotto, yeah, I mean, there's there's a little bit of chance that you could, but the the lotto is an inherently irrational thing to uh, to enter in terms of economic theory, but we can talk about that another day. Um, okay, yeah, so let me get, give you the inherit the win piece, right? So... Inherit the Wind is a dramatization of the Scopes Monkey Trial. And in it, there's a character who's supposed to be William Jennings Bryant. His name is Brady. They call him Colonel Brady. And towards the beginning of the play, he arrives in this little town of Hillsboro. And he wants to pose in a picture right next to the mayor on the one side and the head preacher you know, for the Bible group in the town on the other side. And so here he is, you know, Brady, he's the prosecutor in this trial, and he's got the mayor and then the preacher on the other side. And he's trying to describe the kind of look that they're supposed to have on their face when they pose for this picture. And the look is described as hopeful, hopeful. Now, they're all super religious. They're on the side of religious dogmatism keeping out the teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution in the schools. That's what these guys are about. And so there they are. They want to pose, and they're supposed to be serious and something else, and they describe it hopeful, hopeful. So this brought to mind for me when I was, again, going back to my geeky Oxford English Dictionary. The number two meaning there was a feeling of trust or confidence. And this is a biblical archaism of the word hope. And I'm thinking that this is probably what is behind Brady in that play there, right? What is the hope about? The hope is some sort of confidence or trust in God, that God is going to help them prevail in this trial against the evil teacher who actually dared to teach Darwinian evolution, right? So it's the this feeling of trust or confidence in, in the Lord, so to speak, they would say. And 
that got me thinking that it was perhaps it was that sense of my grandmother's, you know, my grandmother was in the science of mind religion that throughout traditional religion, maybe that's what she was rejecting. This idea of quote, you know, trust or confidence again, the kind of blind confidence. And my conclusion is, yeah, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes the desire plus expectation is going to have some grounding to it. Sometimes it's not. And yeah, you do need to be aware of it, just like you need to be aware of any emotion that you have. But I'm now more open to using this word. And just like any other, you know, with any other emotion, you've got to try to think about what's behind it. Is there, um, you know, is, is there rational hope? <laughs> is, is there rational expectation? Are you desiring something that's rational that you're going to do something about all these things are things that you need to ask yourself. John says, oh, I need to follow up my hope with action. Yeah, <laughs> imagine that. Um, the golden chalice of hope, says Matthew Harrison Brady. Yes. So it, it's interesting, again, to see the the connotations of the word hope. And I suspect it's like so many other terms. It's got this valid connotation and then a number of invalid connotations. And it's those that my grandmother was meaning to reject. And because of her influence for a while, I was rejecting the good stuff too. So that's, that's kind of my long dissertation on hope. What I wanted to give you as a foundation for rational hope was a great reaction to Earth Day that I saw this week. And this was written by Alex Epstein. As you know, Alex Epstein heroically appeared before the Senate recently and um, I think educated, well, he attempted to educate Barbara Boxer and maybe educated other people about the intellectual bankruptcy of politicians like Barbara Boxer in the process. But this nice piece to put Earth Day in the right perspective is called uh, this. He says, the planet has never been a safer place for humans to live. The planet has never been a safer place for humans to live. This is published on April 22nd, fittingly. He says, skip the eco-guilt on this Earth Day. We largely have clean air and clean water. And he goes on to describe how because of cheap and abundant fossil fuels, easy to access, we have been able to make the environment for human beings cleaner and more temperate so that the number of deaths due to extreme climate conditions have vastly decreased ever since we have been using fossil fuels at a, uh, at a higher rate. Now, uh, the one thing I did want to address in this piece, and I, I'll leave you to go read it, go to don'tletitgo.com, and you can um, you know read all the different things that he talks about how our environment is so hospitable to human beings. And again, um, the universe itself is neutral. Human beings, through the use of fossil fuels, have made our world so much more hospitable to other human beings, right? These pioneers who figured out how to use fossil fuels so that we could cool and heat our homes. That's probably the most important thing, right? So we don't freeze to death in the winter and we don't swelter and die of uh, you know, heat exhaustion in, in the summer. But 
what does everybody ask? Everybody says, well, what about the CO2 and the global warming that results from the use of fossil fuels? So I at least want to give you a little bit from that paragraph from Alex. It says, well, what about CO2? And this is, you know, again, reading from Alex's piece here at MarketWatch. He says, if we look at what has been scientifically demonstrated versus what has been speculated, the climate impact of CO2 is real, but mild and manageable. In the last 80 years, we have increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04%, and the warming has been barely more than the natural warming that occurred in the 80 years before that, when there were virtually no CO2 emissions. The total warming during the last 160 years, natural and man-made, is about a degree Celsius. That's all. So Alex's message overall is maybe there is a little bit of warming due to the use of fossil fuels. Nonetheless, if your standard is an environment that is hospitable to human life, it is so much better for us to use these fossil fuels with the slight degree of warming to the climate out there. Why? Because we can protect ourselves from extreme climate conditions vastly better when we use the cheap, plentiful, abundant fossil fuel uh, that's out there. We need energy in order to do stuff. And this is why I always like that campaign. I think Chevron has the campaign, Doers Doing. It is awesome um, because they go out there and they show you what human beings can do with uh, you know, cheap and abundant energy. And that's what we need to keep doing. You know, All these other types, they're unreliables. And they're, and they're called unreliables for a reason. One other piece that I wanted to give you, just in terms of having rational hope, hope based on desires for rational things and expectations based on reality. It's a piece from Dr. Michael Hurd, posted on April 13th, headline, It's Risky Not to Take Risks. And... He starts out right away giving you the upshot. Avoidance of risk is a major cause of personal problems. We hear a lot of talk about depression. What is depression? A lack of energy, motivation, or purpose. What kills purpose? Very often a habitual tendency to avoid risks. And again, you know, risk is something that you have to take if you're ever going to achieve your desires, right? Um, I'm skipping down a lot. I'm, I want to read you one section because he talks about two different types of risk. He says there's basically two different kinds. He says one is the kind that leaves you no worse off than you started. Most risks are of this kind. The other is the kind that could seriously undercut your life or even kill you. It's not automatically and always true that the second risk should be avoided, but you ought to think carefully before taking the second kind of risk. But with the first kind of risk, the kind that will leave you no worse off than you started, you should usually take the plunge. It's not only because something good might happen as a result, it's also because it will desensitize you to the sting of failure and help you better feel like failures are a part of life as they go with the territory. And then he says, for more perspective on what I'm saying, read the biographies of anyone who achieves something. You'll find that such people almost always took more risks than most people. In the process, they had a greater number of failures, but they also achieved a lot more. There's a fabulous quote from Michael Jordan on this topic, by the way. He says, if you avoid risks like the plague, you're taking a bigger risk than any one risk would ever actually be. Think about it. 
end quote. So I wanted to leave you with that. Uh, you know, if you if you have hope, you have desire plus expectation, you'll have to take the risk and check it out. Now, Michael in the chat room says that Michael Hurd's daily dose of reason is a mainstay, mainstay, excuse me, mainstay of my morning routine at work. Yeah, he's got a lot of excellent stuff. I usually um, have this in my news feed because I follow Dr. Hurd on Facebook, and so that's how I kind of depend on it winding up in my in my feed, but I don't have it in my inbox. Probably I should get it there, too. He's got a lot of good stuff. Um, what I wanted to do, I don't know if I got any questions. I got a few callers on the line, but nobody's got the question icon uh, posted there. That was all that I had for this show. I actually thank you for tuning in and for indulging me with my indulgent show. I'm not doing the usual news. I was actually thinking I'm going to talk about the election, Trump and Cruz, and I talked about Cruz a tiny bit, just saying, look, this is the guy who's going to save our soldiers. So my answer to to Pam in the beginning was that I do a lot for our our soldiers. But today I wanted to indulge a little. I wanted to um, just highlight and defend Prince a bit. And I also wanted to do my little foray on hope. So I, I I hope that you enjoyed my show on hope. I have reason to think that you do because I did quite a bit of research and thinking and I'm guiding you through it. And I'm hoping that you can use this to come back and continue the discussion about hope at don'tletitgo.com. Uh, that you have hope for the future due to people like Alex Epstein and also the information that he provides you, the fact that this world that we live in is so much more hospitable to human life than it was before thanks to fossil fuels uh, you know that you should take risks you should go out and achieve your desires and in fact in not taking risks you're taking a risk right so the last thing I want to do is I'm going to leave you with a Prince song but it's a song that Prince wrote but it was performed by Sinead O'Connor and Sinead O'Connor was a longtime love of mine. I'm going to indulge and tell you my Sinead O'Connor story. When I was 19, I managed a Sam Goody record store. And actually, I may have been an only an assistant manager when the thing that I'm going to tell you about happened. Um, so first I was assistant manager, then when I was 19, I became manager. And there was a record that came into the store. I knew of U2. I really liked the band U2. And The Edge, the guitarist of U2, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, uh, he wrote a soundtrack for a movie called Captive. And on that soundtrack was a song called Heroin. And heroin, like the a, a female hero, not the drug, heroin. I don't know how to pronounce those two separately or distinctly. Uh, so the song was excellent. So, sung by Sinead O'Connor, I became a fan of Sinead O'Connor, only from that. And that was before Lion and the Cobra, right? So Lion and the Cobra was her debut awesome album that I listened to millions of times. I don't even know. So, again, I was I was a fan of Sinead O'Connor before even her debut album. And then later, of course, Prince wrote a song that... Uh, for her that she could make into a beautiful hit, which is called Nothing Compares to You. And so what I'm going to play you right now is a live version of that song. You can see a video over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, but uh, you know, for the videos, I really want you to go see the Prince videos mostly. I'm going to play you this, this Sinead O'Connor song. So you could say that this is a song 
written by his royal badness, sung by her baldness, Sinead O'Connor. I hope you guys know Sinead O'Connor. She's excellent. Again, go back and check out that soundtrack, Captive. Check out Lion and the Cobra as well. I don't think you'll regret it at all. If I had to sum up this song in one word, I would say it's about purgatory, right? You might say it's about hell, but I would say that because in the end, the narrator, Sinead, has hope for her relationship to be reconciled, I'm going to put it in the category of purgatory. And of course, because her plea, this song, she performs it so well, uh, how could the guy resist, right? So that's what I'm going to play for you as we exit here. And I thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. I may be talking to you at the same time next week. I kind of like this time slot. So let me know what you think. But I, I may be talking to you in seven days at this exact time. Take care.